Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. This edition of the podcast features highlights from the 2017 Unite event, CBA's International Convention in Cincinnati, sponsored by CBA, the Association for Christian Retail. You'll also be hearing some more conversation excerpts. First up on this edition of the podcast, you'll be hearing from Terrence Chapman of the Fellowship of Companies for Christ International, who talked with me about not only some of the initiatives of FCCI, but also regarding a book he's written about spiritual training in the context of the family. Material from that conversation ahead. Then from Answers in Genesis, an update from Tim Chafee, who is involved in the Ark Encounter and Creation Museum, plus he's written several books relative to the life of Noah. Also coming up, it's children's author Amy Parker, who's written a series of books that can have the effect of facilitating young ones going to sleep at night. You'll also be hearing from Victor Torres, whose life story provides the basis for a film that depicts his life before Christ in gang activity and drugs, and what God has done in his life, including ministry work to help troubled young people. Highlights of a CBA Unite interview ahead. And on this edition of The Intersection, CBA Unite conversation excerpts from two couples who have experienced trouble in their respective marriages and have seen God's faithfulness in putting them back together. You'll meet Reginald and Renee Morris, as well as Chris and Colleen McCain, as they share from their amazing stories of God's faithfulness. Then, Nancy McGargle, who faced a difficult end-of-life decision regarding her daughter, who was severely injured in an accident and experienced significant deterioration of her brain. From CBA Unite 2017, some insights she gained from this tragic journey. Then excerpts from two conversations not at CBA Unite. It's pastor and author Rick Stedman, who's crafted a book that can challenge believers to look for evidence of God and His truth all around us. Finally, you'll be hearing from a conversation with Arena Grosu of the Family Research Council, who spoke with me about Charlie Gard, the 11-month-old child clinging to life in the UK with a rare disease. The hospital would not release him to his parents, who wished to seek treatment elsewhere, including possibly in the U.S. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. At the 2017 CBA United event in Cincinnati, Terrence Chapman, CEO of the Fellowship of Companies for Christ International, stopped by the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center and shared elements of the ministry of FCCI. He also discussed his book, Do Your Children Believe?, Becoming Intentional About Your Family's Faith and Spiritual Legacy. From that conversation, this is Terrence Chapman. It seems like that the small group curriculum or the small group experience might be something that could be helpful. It absolutely is, and we can't take credit for it. We, we kind of borrowed it from Jesus, and uh, he, he kind of set the tone <laughs> yeah, for a, us. Yeah, right? what a great idea. <laughs> so, so we figured, hey, if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for FCCI. But, but the uh, small groups are really our discipleship groups. It's really the heartbeat of FCCI. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when we uh, gather uh, on an annual basis in September, in fact, I want to invite everyone to our September conference, uh, the 17th through 21st in Miami, Florida. When we gather there, the testimonials that we hear and the, and the life change that's taking place in those small groups, they're transformational. Uh, lives are being changed. Uh, organizations, cultures are being changed. Uh, communities are being impacted. In fact, our model is if there's an FCCI company operating there, that community, that nation should not be the same. 
Wow. So you you have the leaders that take part in the small group with employees, or do you also have leaders that, that fellowship with one another? Well, these fellow these are peer on peer. So yeah, leader, yeah. CEO, CEO, owner, owner, uh, executive leaders, executive leaders. And wow. they're talking about real business issues and challenges. What they're looking at is what the 66 books and biblical principles have to say, and how do you apply that to your life? Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about the, we'll shift gears just a bit with respect to this book that you've written. It's called, Do Your Children Believe? And the subtitle of the book is Becoming Intentional About Your Family's Faith and Spiritual Legacy. What inspired you to write this? Well, my wife and I was on our 15th year anniversary and um, uh, we were having a great time. And I had three questions prepared during that time. Uh, Where have we been? Where are we now? And where are we going? It seems, uh, mm. uh, don't seem too amazingly uh, uh, great, and, and, uh, but uh, it was a great conversation. During that conversation, uh, she turned to me and said, uh, are the kids prepared to defend their faith after high school? They knew who the Lord was, but were they mature enough to defend their faith? As we talked about it and debate about it, the response came back, no, we don't feel that they're prepared to defend their faith. So she turned to me and said, well, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> Nothing like putting you on the spot there. So I said, wait a minute, you're the spiritual leader of the home. What are you going to do about it? Right? And she said, well, I'm not the spiritual leader of the home. You should be. You abdicated that to me she, in the church. But she, <laughs> she had you there. Oh, she, she had me a little handcuffs there. Uh, so that kind of started the journey of some 10 plus years ago, 15 years ago now. And uh, as I began to think through, I, I took some experiences that I had in corporate America, and I began to apply those to this, to this really, the solution, uh, how we're going to train these kids in the Lord and how we're going to bring them up this way. And I remember, uh, as I look back on my business experience, uh, what vision do you have? In this case, what vision do you have for your family? What's the mental image? Uh, you know, we're not trying to make disciples when they're five years old. We're making disciples when they become 20 years old. And so I began to look at our, do I have a vision? A statement for my family? Do I have a mission, which is a way to achieve the vision? Uh, do I have goals and values? What are my core values? What's the family's core values? None of that's being defined. How do we put this on paper? Because what's on paper gets done, typically. And so as I begin to look at this and put this together, uh, we begin to put in uh, small group training for uh, really discipleship uh, for our own family. And uh, we started doing devotionals on a weekly basis and every other week. And and eight to nine, we, we have devotion times. And the beauty is we still have devotion times today. And our kids are in the 20s, 30s. So wow, uh, this continues. Well, anyway, that prompted the, the need uh, as we were getting out. And uh, we started training parents all around the world. We trained over, uh, they say, 30,000 churches and over thousands, hundreds of thousands of p- uh, p- parents. And so they said, well, you need a book. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I don't want to write a book. But, but it comes down to um, we wanted to put uh, some pen to paper and prayer. Uh, and that pent this book, Do Your Children Believe? Terrence Chapman here on The Intersection. The FCCI website is FCCI.org. The book website is DoYourChildrenBelieve.com. This is The Intersection Podcast. Tim Chafee, Content Manager for the Attractions Division of Answers in Genesis, which includes the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter, and also the co-author of Noah, Man of Resolve, and Noah, Man of Destiny, visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at Unite 2017. He discussed the 10th anniversary of the museum and a new exhibit there. He also reflected on the first year of the Ark Encounter and shared material relative to the Noah books. From that conversation, here is Tim Chafee. 
already you're, you're set to go over a million people in attendance here, having begun in the middle of the summer months, which I would say would be traditionally a time or will be traditionally a time where you have a lot of people that will be visiting. Yeah, that's true. We, we missed out on the entire summer vacation period last year. You know, a lot of times people are taking from the middle of May all the way through mm-hmm. middle of August. Well, we missed half of that last year by not being open in time. Um, but we've seen the numbers are just fantastic. Um, it's thousands and thousands of people every single day. So uh, I know within the first year we're set to, I believe we're set to be well over a million. I don't have the official number yet. I think we'll announce that um, after the one year is up, but um, it'll, uh, I think people will be surprised, especially the skeptics who say it's failing, the ones who, you know, the one study that was conducted that said we'll only have about 500,000 people or 400,000 people, and, uh, you know, we're, we're well over that, hmm. and uh, the research we have conducted looks like it's going to be right on. Well, and we know the Ark Encounter, the stories told through this this particular venue, as well as the Creation Museum, are stories about God, our Creator, and His Son, Jesus Christ, who was sent to us to be our Savior. Of course, one of the, you might say, one of the people in a leading role in Ark Encounter is none other than Noah. You have already released two books about Noah, and you have a third coming out. Take us through these different books in the series and what you wanted to do with each one. Well, as I said before, they're, they're historical fiction, so a lot of the details... We- you know, the Bible doesn't give us those details. So what we did is took the scant amount of information we have in the Bible about Noah and built that world from the pre- you know, from Genesis 1 through 6, built that world around him and put him in it. And we made it kind of a coming-of-age story. So we see him as a young man up until the time that he builds the ark and the, ultimately that the flood would come. And uh, so what we did at the ark encounter is we've shown him as somebody who looks like he's capable uh, capable of building the ark. Uh, you mentioned the Noah movie earlier. That might be the only good thing they did. Is actually, the guy who plays Noah, Russell Crowe, looks like he could have built an ark instead of somebody who, <laughs> you know, looks like he's, you know, very feeble and couldn't quite do it like you usually see him pictured. Uh, but that would be the only thing. <laughs> um, but so. we, we show him as somebody who is a godly man, somebody who um, still had some of the same trials, temptations, some of the struggles that we face because he, he was also a sinner saved by grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so we wanted to explore what, did it, what would it be like for a godly man to live at that time and how would he relate to his creator prior to uh, the, you know, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, prior to the law being given to Moses. What would it look like for somebody at that time period? So there was, there was a lot to explore and uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it. Excellent. Well, Tim Chafee has been joining us today here on The Meeting House on Faith Radio, talking about the Ark Encounter Creation Museum and your books about Noah. You also have other books that you've written. Searching for Truth Mm -hmm. is one that you've been involved in as well. Yeah, Searching for Truth is actually uh, based on the final exhibit people get to see at the Ark Encounter, which is called Why the Bible is True. And it it really is a a gorgeous exhibit. It's uh, done as a graphic novel style where you walk. It's like walking through the pages of of a graphic novel and you're following these three college students around their campus and uh, one of them is witnessing to the other two as they're questioning the bible questioning his beliefs and he's able to to defend his faith and witness to him and uh, it's very dramatic and uh, the searching for truth actually just comes right from there Um, so it is like a graphic novel and there's extra information as well that we couldn't get into detail on the on the walls because you can't stop people forever just (laughs) as much as i would like to (laughs) yes i understand (laughs) tim chafee here on the intersection Learn more about the ministry by going to AnswersInGenesis.com. The intersection continues now with Christian children's author Amy Parker. 
In her conversation with me at CBA Unite 2017, she shared about her approach to writing and some elements of her Night Night series, which includes the book Night Night Train. From that conversation in Cincinnati, here is Amy Parker. There is something that is very meaningful there at the end of the day, and I can imagine parents can relate to just what you were saying with your three-year-old and trying to get the child to sleep. And, you know, that's something that is is very, people can relate to, yes. obviously. Obviously. Um, so they're lyrical verses that have a little bit of a rhythm and rhyme to them and so the idea is to help lull to sleep and there are also um, some familiarity in the nighttime routine that we walk through Um, in night night train specifically you know the the kids are riding on a train to sleepy town which is a town my mom used to tell me when um, I was going to sleep when I was little that we were going to sleepy town and so this train is going to sleepy town and um, the little dog family on board, the kids um, brush their teeth and take a bath and eat their dinner and say their prayers and then go to sleep. Um, so it, it shows the kids other families or animals or something endearing to them participating in the nighttime routine and just creates a comfort level for them and um, just helps ease them into that routine. So what you're trying to do through these books is to really provide that that routine for a child and also to provide that sense of expectation. You know, we've done everything here. We've we've brushed our teeth. We've gotten ready for bed. Now the expectation is for you to, well, sleep. Yes. And so now you're attempting to, to facilitate <laughs> That and that's very important because you know yes. obviously as as mom and dad we recognize the the importance of that for a child but uh, you you do help to facilitate that no doubt. Um, yes, and so I I am not so much a routine person, but the child the redhead that I was trying to get to sleep <laughs> is, and so I think in a backward way I'm providing the routine that he taught me that he needed. Um, so he's, he's very much driven by routine. So, um, and I think when kids see, you know, that when we model that routine for children, because the kids don't necessarily see us brushing our teeth and taking a bath and going to our own beds because we get them in bed first. So we are showing them animals, things that they love, also participating in this routine. They see it as you know, a normal way of life, and they say their prayers before they go to bed, and so it just teaches them those things. And in night-night prayer, the first one, um, the kids walk through saying thank you for the things that God gave them that day. So that one, we vary it a little. It's not all about, um, you know, the nighttime routine. That one was more about the pattern of prayer and just saying thank you for just the everyday things in our lives, the puppies and the kittens and mommy and daddy and things like that. Um, and then farm walks through the routine, but it also teaches the kids night, night farm. It also teaches the kids, um, animal sounds, which is something they're learning around 18 months, two years of age. So they say night, night to the animals in their own language. They'll say moo, moo, cow, and things like that. So they're saying night, night, um, in their own language. So we try to, to vary it and, um, and they're all in a motif or a setting that kids really love and engage with anyway. So we're hoping to not only provide them an entertaining story, but to build a little routine and to sort of lull them (laughs) into sleep. So 
And I wanted you to comment on the spiritual content. How is how is that woven into your your books or into the series? Well, these are for preschoolers, so the the spiritual content is fairly light. Um, we don't dive into theology, obviously. Mm. Um, but I've had so many parents come to me and say. Um, just last week, one came to me and said, we have the night-night prayer, and I'm reading that. I think she told me her son was six months old, but we're reading the night-night prayer now, and we just want to help establish that routine and make prayer a part of their daily lives and um, and just show them that prayer doesn't have to be a person standing on a podium using eloquent words. Prayer is just saying, thank you, God. Thanks for all that I have. Help me out, you know, in, in a very friendly conversational tone. So um, I hope we get that across to kids in the, at least the night-night prayer. And then all of the night-night books end with, you know, saying night-night to God. Um, Night-night train, it talks about how God watches over us while we sleep. Um, So there's that comfort that there's something bigger than us. God is watching over us as we sleep. So that just adds another layer of comfort to that Mm. nighttime story. Amy Parker here on The Intersection. Learn more through the website amyparkerbooks.com. Victor Torres stopped by the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at the 2017 CBA Unite event. His story is portrayed in the feature film, Victor. In fact, in our conversation, he shared from his story. He was involved in gang and drug activity in New York City. He accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He now ministers to young people through the ministry he co-founded called New Life for Youth. Here now is Victor Torres. Well, one day I I walked into uh, the home and uh, she was waiting for me. She was very excited. I noticed that. She said, I I found this place. I found this place that's going to help you. And she started telling me about this home and this center that had opened up uh, not too far from where we live. And I said, well, Mom, you know, I, I, I really, you know, don't want to hear it. She, and the thing about it was she, that she never told me it was a Christian place. Mm. She just said it was a place that was helping young men that were in gangs and drugs. And, and you know, it will really help you. And so, you know, she convinced me. And, and the next day I went with her. And to my surprise, it was a Christian home. And David Wilkerson was there. And also Nikki Cruz was there. And uh, uh, Nikki was one of the first ones to, to talk to me. And I thought, well, you know, what is this guy? Guy, you know, he used to be on the streets. We were actually enemies on the streets oh because he was running around with a gang that was opposite to our gang, and uh, and now these people are preaching to me, and and uh, it was it was hard for me to to receive it, but I made a decision to give it a try, and by the third day I was so desperate because I was withdrawing from drugs, cold turkey, and my body was shaking. I had what they call the super flu. My body was just feeling this feverish uh, feelings all over my body, and I wanted to run out of the place. And the door was wide open. I, I started leaving when another young man stopped me at the door, started talking to me again about Jesus, and that's when I made up my mind. I turned back to the building, and I walked inside all by myself. He left me alone. And I walked inside of a small room they call the chapel. I got on my knees, and for the first time, I cried out to God. And I started thinking about everything that my mother used to preach to me. Wow. And I was so desperate and so physically sick. 
that I started calling out to God and I said, God, please, if you can give me the power to change, please come into my life and change my life. And right there, I had a, a, an experience that I always say I, I didn't see lightning. The walls didn't come down. But when I got up to my feet, I knew that God was real and something had happened inside of me. My life was changed from that moment on. Describe the difference that the presence of Jesus Christ made in your life. It's amazing because in the past, I had these controlling powers over me, like heroin addiction, mm. like rebellion, and you know the, the darkness that I was living in. And now suddenly, I had this power for the first time to say no to that controlling f factor and to feel that I didn't need drugs to feel high, to feel good, that I, I can get high on life, that I can get high on the beautiful things that, that God put in this world. And so there, there's definitely a, a great difference. The joy factor is unbelievable. Well, you fast forward just a bit. You became involved. Having been ministered to, you actually began to do ministry through an organization called New Life for Youth. Tell me about that, please. Well, Bob, you know, uh, after Christ came into my life, I went to Bible college, and I met my wife there. We traveled the world preaching the gospel, and one day I got invited to come to Richmond, Virginia for a speaking engagement. And we were actually itinerating from New York City to California, and I had all these meetings planned. When we got to Richmond, we never left Richmond. We preached there in this church and then decided to make Richmond our home. And we started an organization called New Life for Youth, opened up a home. Uh, well, actually, the first few students, we, we call them students, the young men that we try to help, we brought them into our home. And then we went out, we rented a home, and that snowballed into uh, another home. And then finally, we bought a ranch where we house today over 200 young men and young women wow. that are receiving help uh, from drug addiction. And uh, we have had over 20,000 come to our program. And today, uh, after 46 years, our program is one of the most successful ministries in reaching young men and young women with life-controlling problems. We also run a, a, a two homes for women. Victor Torres here on The Intersection. Learn more about the ministry at newlifeforyouth.com. The movie website is thevictormovie.com. This is The Intersection Podcast, the weekly production of The Meeting House. You can learn more by going to meetinghouseonline.info. There you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to and download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. Also through that website, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs can be accessed. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from The Meeting House program. You could also follow me on Twitter and access The Meeting House Facebook page. Video content is available also through that site. You can see video content from conversations at CBA Unite 2017. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. 
Reginald and Renee Morris visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at the 2017 Unite event to discuss the troubles in their marriage, including three separations and imminent divorce. They've co-written the book, Resurrect Your Dead Marriage, and discussed the concept of a marriage resurrection, which they experienced. Here now are Reginald and Renee Morris. You have a marriage that you've had three separations, you've been on the brink of divorce, have never gone through divorce, you had a 30-year-old marriage, but Renee, there was a time where you basically wanted to leave, Reginald would have none of it, and then he talks about God wanting the marriage to stay together. Now, you know, if someone is walking in your shoes and your spouse is talking spiritually to you, making you feel like, well, you're going to break God's will if you go through this, that to me, that seems like it would be a very uncomfortable position <laughs> for you. Needless to say, you, you yes. probably, yeah. It was very uncomfortable, and I, um, as a result, moved further away from him and yeah. further away from God because I didn't want to hear it. It was very difficult at that time for me to face myself and to be, you know, serious with myself and what I was actually doing. So what ended up happening is it was intercessory prayer on his part that made the difference. And just like the reconciliation process happens over time, the restoration process happens over time, but the resurrection process happens in a moment. It was it's dead and then it's alive because it's an encounter with Christ. And that's what happened to me. And if I said, if it wasn't for, obviously there was prayer, obviously there was love, but forgiveness was a big part of it as well. For me to forgive myself, for him to forgive me, and for us to be able to come together and then be able to communicate. Mm. And what happened in that resurrection is the things that I felt or believed or thought about him and the way he did things, said things, felt about things completely changed because what the Lord showed me was I was looking at it all wrong. Hmm. See, a lot of people make their mistake. And I initially, when she told me she wanted a divorce, I went down that path trying to have a spiritual conversation with her. You cannot do that. That is a death nail number one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's one of the things we talk about in our book. And what the Lord told me was have the conversation with him. And that's when he started showing me in his word that there is what is called a marriage resurrection, which is just as each of us as believers can remember the day that we accepted Jesus Christ as our personal life. Well, that day, that resurrection is something that occurs in the life of a dead marriage. When you go back and you take your, you remind God of the covenant that exists between you and your spouse. Hmm. And you start asking him uh, about that situation. He will step by step, and we lay that step out in the book, on how to bring that spouse back home. How to, because really what you're doing is you're helping another believer, because that's what you have in your spouse, hopefully, and and you're helping that believer reconnect with Christ. That's your focus. Mm -hmm. I'm helping my brother, my sister get back in with Christ. As you're doing that, 
you're starting to become the extension of Christ's love to that individual. And I think that's key, that piece about seeing your spouse as a sister and brother in Christ first, hmm. because that changes your perspective and that puts you on the right track for how you ought to come to God and be able to pray in, on behalf of the other person. And it changes the actions that you take. Reginald and Renee Morris here on The Intersection. You can learn more by going to the website divorceproof.org. Also at CBA Unite 2017, I spoke with another couple that had experienced God's healing in their marriage. Their names are Chris and Colleen McCain. They've authored the book, It's His Show, Finding Grace in the Wake of Infidelity. They shared about the troubles they faced in their marriage and how God restored it. Here now are Chris and Colleen McCain. So the first time that the the infidelity occurred, Chris, you basically confessed it to, I, I to Colleen. Was that, was that a struggle for you to actually come clean that first time? In a way it was, and in a way it wasn't. Yeah. Um, the shame and the guilt that goes with that sin can be so overwhelming that there just comes a point where you don't want to carry that anymore and you want you don't want to hurt the Lord anymore and you definitely don't want to hurt your family anymore so I came clean on that one but where I failed in that was at first after the confession things were working and things were okay but my ability to forgive myself and to accept God's forgiveness I I, I didn't do that hmm. I could not I couldn't get over the shame and the guilt, and it was our it was our pride that we wanted to keep it quiet, that we didn't reach out and get help. In 2020 hindsight, now, yeah. I sure wish we had after that first time. And then there were subsequent times. Was the was the guilt, the shame you were referring to? Was that basically what was was a motivating factor, or what was taking place in your heart and mind? I just developed uh, a lot of anger between me and Colleen and mm-hmm. and I, I didn't care I just I went into all-out rebellion uh, the Bible talks about Lord giving us over to a reprobate mind I believe that's what I fell into mm-hmm. and uh, was not going to please the Lord was not going to please her was going to serve self and I was really fertile ground for Satan and wow. he provided well you guys have written a book you have been transparent about sharing your story, obviously there was something that, that took place where God mended and healed your marriage relationship. Colleen, what contributed to that? What contributed to that was when we separated after that fourth and final um, affair was I was just really relying on God and became probably closer to the Lord during that time than ever before in my life. I'd loved the Lord for a long time, but um, really just, you know, when we go through something very difficult, um, I think a lot of times um, it shouldn't, shouldn't come to that, but that's when we rely mostly on the Lord. And so I really did and really prayed and sought him. And of course we had our family that um, I would have loved to preserve if at all possible, but I really had sort of closed that door in my mind. Um, when, when I found out about this, but I started just seeing things happening in Chris, things that, um, only God could do. And so I knew that if God was in it, then I could trust God and I would be willing to consider possibly staying in the marriage. Well, Chris, Colleen said she observed that God was doing something 
in your life. Talk about what was going on with you as he began to start bringing the two of you back together. As you can imagine, over those four years of lying and cheating and being deceitful that, and being separated from God, my prayer life was dead. My, I would open my Bible and read it. It, it was dead. Not, my relationship with the Lord was, was dead. We separated on a Sunday evening, and I went to a, a hotel that evening. And it was after I had repented that day, it was immediately that the Lord stepped in and began to do things in my life. It was miracle after miracle starting that first night. Um, I really sensed that I was praying and he was with me. I did read my Bible that evening and and it made sense to me. I, I could understand it. Um, so that was the that was the first part. I went through a major transformation of not just the sin of the adultery, but my perception of grace and mercy. God changed that. Uh, just a whole new appreciation for worship. Uh, that changed. Um, being able to tell the truth, uh, that was a big thing for Colleen, um, to all of a sudden to not have to doubt what I was telling her. And we had, we had to work through some really, really hard things. After everything had come out, and we had a lot of details to 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 go through and to work out, but the fact that I was able to tell the truth, the stories were making sense, they were adding up, and it gave Colleen peace that that God was was changing my heart. Hmm. Chris and Colleen McCain here on the intersection. Learn more through the website. It's his show dot com. Also at CBA United Cincinnati, Nancy McGargle, author of the book, A Time to Die, A Time to Live, Discovering Life After End-of-Life Decisions, visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center. She discussed the struggle that she faced regarding the end-of-life decision concerning her daughter and what she learned in the aftermath. From that conversation, here is Nancy McGargle. In the process of doing all of the reading and the research, and also uh, in writing the book, I had interviewed Stacy's doctors and spent hours. At, they were so gracious, so gracious. I mean, God brought so many people to my help. Understanding her, her injury was one thing, but dealing with the, the ramifications of those decisions and the aftermath was quite another. And so God used a series of things that brought me to an understanding as I had never had before of his love and his total acceptance and that this didn't have anything to do with doing something wrong in God's sight. Mm. And in fact, uh, he taught me that the decision to withdraw life support was really not um, the issue at all. It was listening to any voice other than his. And all along, he was speaking his love and compassion. Only I had in my mind, I have to do the right thing. And what is that right thing? And God, why can't you just tell me what to do here? <laughs> but eventually, God got through to me how much he, he truly, truly, truly loves me and each of his children. And now I can say I've experienced the truth of God's love. I've experienced the truth of the Scripture. He's working all things together for our good and for his glory. That's my experience I believe that our eternal spirit is what the Lord graciously has redeemed and 
puts, he puts eternity in us. He mm. places eternity in us. And therefore, when this shell that carries around, you know, who we are, the essence of who we are, when that breaks down and passes and returns to the earth, that our eternity, our eternal spirit, goes to live with Christ. Now, part of the struggle I had was, uh, so is Stacy truly saved? And is there really a heaven? I went into this being a very strong Christian and teaching the Bible. But when you're tested to this nth degree, and when you're placed in a position such as this, those things that you've believed in your whole life become the foundation that Satan would try to crumble mm -hmm. underneath you. And, and so it was very important for me to know where was Stacy going to spend eternity and what was God's will in this. God taught me so many lessons. I would never want anyone else to have to go through anything like this. And I would never want to do it again either. But I have learned so much about God's love and forgiveness. So you say, how did he teach me? It was a long process. I was listening to uh, CDs from the International House of Prayer. I was calling out to counselors and chaplains and others for help. I was uh, reading books like um, Practice the Presence of God, mm -hmm. Angela Thomas's you are, um, you are Something Beautiful, Do You Think I'm Beautiful? In the process of doing all of the reading and the research, and also uh, in writing the book, I had interviewed Stacy's doctors and spent hours. They were so gracious, so gracious. I mean, God brought so many people to my help. Understanding her, her injury was one thing, but dealing with the ramifications of those decisions and the aftermath was quite another. And so God used a series of things that brought me to an understanding as I had never had before of his love and his total acceptance and that this didn't have anything to do with doing something wrong in God's sight. Mm. And in fact, uh, he taught me that the decision to withdraw life support was really not um, the issue at all. It was listening to any voice other than his. And all along, he was speaking his love and compassion. Only I had in my mind, I have to do the right thing. And what is that right thing? And God, why can't you just tell me what to do here? <laughs> but eventually, God got through to me how much he, he truly, truly, truly loves me and each of his children. And now I can say I've experienced the truth of God's love. I've experienced the truth of the scripture. He's working all things together for our good and for his glory. That's my experience. Nancy McGargle here on The Intersection. Learn more by going to the website timetolivebook.com. Now moving into some conversation material that was not recorded at the CBA United event in Cincinnati. Rick Steadman is the founder of Adventure Christian Church in Roseville, California, which he led for two decades. In a recent conversation, he shared material relative to his book, 31 Surprising Reasons to Believe in God, how superheroes, art, environmentalism, and science point toward faith. Challenging people to see evidence of God in various cultural elements. Here now is Rick Stedman. These musicians, and, and all musicians, whether secular or, or Christian or whatever, 
certainly uh, the secular ones don't think that it has any relation to God, but music in its very nature, I mean, um, just in, in simple ways, first of all, music, uh, the reason we love music is because it's structurally complex. It's not just random like street sounds and things like that, and that reflects the the complexity and structure that God has given us in this ordered universe. I mean, the heavens are called the music of the spheres, and uh, so... That's the first thing. The second thing is that there's this resolution, tension and resolution in music. Uh, as one author puts it, that music uh, puts uh, pushes towards endings always, and everything depends on how and when we resolve our tensions. And that's that's what life's all about. Life's all about resolving tensions. And, and the greatest tension of all is that it, does life have any meaning? And so music, uh, that just that it's always it's always moving towards resolution, and as as beings, we are moving towards ultimate resolution one day to stand before God, and and heaven is that ultimate resolution. But the other thing, Bob, it's really, I mean, God loves music. Music is all yep. over the Bible, and uh, the Bible starts in Genesis. It has music. Uh, in the early chapters, and and heaven in the last chapter, uh, last chapters, includes music. So music definitely has some spiritual uh, basis and some spiritual pointers in it. I'm not saying that it's a book that you know everything is this hard and fast kind of you know um, refutation less proof, but instead I'm saying that all these things when you think about them they sort of lean towards theism. They lean us and point us in the direction of God. Well, let's talk about one of those words mentioned in the subtitle of the book, and that is superheroes. How do superheroes provide some reason for believing in God? Well, you know, it's again, it's, it's, uh, it's this thing that sort of points toward the existence of the supernatural. It's very interesting. You'd think, Bob, in our secular culture— where God is more and more denied vehemently, you know, in academics and the media, et cetera, in politics and law and law. Why then are people so enraptured with movies about the supernatural? I mean, I, I mean, these are literally God-like people that we are obsessed with, and it's not just occasionally. As I mentioned in the book, the majority of the most popular movies in the last 20 years have been about superheroes and fantasy and Lord of the Rings and, you know, I, I just saw uh, Wonder Woman the other day and, and she's just not a regular human. She is a a god, a deity in human form. And one, uh, one author says that as we have... Um, as we have denied the supernatural and we've repressed it, it, ha- it sublimates in other areas by necessity. And so I believe that all the superheroes, all the X-Men, all this kind of stuff, I believe that this is our repressed supernatural yearnings coming out and fulfilling our need for something larger than life, something divine. Um, and the opposite is true also about horror movies. You ever wonder why in our secular world why people are so into, I mean, goodness, vampires, um, werewolves, even zombies? I mean, honestly, Bob, would you ever have thought with all the secularism today that people would be into zombies? Mm. Interesting. It's, yeah, there's a supernatural it's, element there. 
It's, it is. And what happens is, again, um, it's as we have repressed, uh, repressed the negative side uh, comes out in this darkness and, and literally in supernatural monsters. And I believe that I mean, how can you explain this? Stephen King is one of the best-selling authors, authors of all time, and Anne Rice has sold so many books about vampires. It's because people have this deep, deep need for the supernatural, and this, because they've denied it in the rest of their lives, this sort of fulfills that need. Rick Stedman here on The Intersection. His website is rickstedman, S-T-E-D-M-A-N, dot com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection podcast, it's Arena Grossoup director of the Center for Human Dignity at the Family Research Council. In our conversation, she discussed the case involving 11-month-old Charlie Gard, who had not been allowed to leave a British hospital where he was being treated for a debilitating disease. His parents had requested that Charlie be allowed to be transferred to another hospital at which he could receive treatment, but courts denied the requests. Here now from that conversation is Arena Grosu. Charlie is an 11-month-old baby with a condition called TK2-related mitochondrial depletion syndrome. This is where his body uh, saps the vital organs of energy, causes progressive muscle weakness and brain damage in his case. And and so he has a very serious um, progression of this. In fact, um, the doctors at this hospital say that he can't see, hear, or move, and he has to be on a ventilator. Now, we know that NIH has reported that people with TK2 MDS can survive to childhood or in rare cases even adolescence or adulthood. And we know that there are therapies that have worked for other people with TK2 uh, MDS and, and his parents are asking the hospital, the London hospital, to release Charlie so that he can come either to the U.S. Uh, the two hospitals in the U.S. are New York Presbyterian Hospital and Columbia University Hospital, uh, who are willing to try this therapy on Charlie to see if it works. And his parents uh, went to the U.K. Supreme Court, but on June 8th, the U- U.K. Supreme Court uh, was given permission to turn off Charlie's ventilator. So then they appealed to the European Court of Human Rights. And the reason why this case is now getting all this attention is that on June 27th, the European court rejected the parents' appeal, thus allowing the, the hospital at any point to turn off his ventilator. And right now, at any moment, his ventilator could be turned off. And that is why Pope Francis and President Trump have stepped in to offer their support, to, to, to show the family that they are with them. And so have these hospitals. The, the parents have raised enough money. They have raised over $1.7 million of their own private funds to, to transport Charlie. The, and the actual therapy is a simple oral medication. That's all, that's all it is. And so there's absolutely no reason why this hospital should be holding Charlie hostage and not releasing him to his parents so that they can try to give him a chance by having this therapy. Well, and as you said, his parents had appealed to the British Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of the hospital as far as not releasing Charlie to them. And then the European Court also really giving the hospital permission to remove life support at any time. Now, there were reports that would take place one week ago today, last Friday, and... 
I think really, Arena, it is something that is rather encouraging in this particular case that life support as of the moment of this conversation has not been removed. But as you point out, it could be removed at any moment. It could be removed at any moment. And Charlie's parents said, we're not allowed to choose if our son lives and we're not allowed to choose when or when or when or where Charlie dies. So this the reason why this this uh, case has come up and, and, and struck an international nerve is because you have the state, you have a court, you have a government that runs by socialized medicine too. They have a socialized medicine in, in the UK that is deciding Charlie's fate over his parents' rights. So the question is, to whom does Charlie belong? Is he his parents or is he the state? And we see this as a, as a big problem. Mm. The, his parents are not required to give this kind of extraordinary care um, because it is, it is experimental therapy, so it's not necessarily that it's going to work. They're not morally required or obliged, but they want to, and, and they have a right to it. And, and the hospital has no right to stop them because they – Charlie does not belong to them, but – um, this is this is why it's such a big case, and uh, you know there are a number of groups, and we have there's the 40 parliament members, uh, we have people at not only Trump and and Pope Francis, but Cher and others who are getting involved. Uh, we held a press conference yesterday at the National Press Club with uh, pro-life leaders in support of Charlie and his family, and there's actually a, a small delegation, including Bobby Schindler, who was Terry Schiavo's brother, but, um, Terry Schiavo, who died in the hospital again because the hospital chose to turn off her life support as well. And they all went to um, London as of today to fight for Charlie's life. Arena Grosu here on The Intersection. The Family Research Council website is frc.org. Also an update, at the time of this podcast, a hearing was held just this week. And the judge in the case has indicated he would reconsider his earlier decision to remove life support pending a visit to the UK in the coming week from a doctor from the US who will examine Charlie. This has been the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. That website address is meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link there to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. Also, you can get subscribed to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes, each week. Two blogs are accessible. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Plus, you can get connected to video content, including content from the recent 2017 CBA Unite event at the Duke Energy Center in downtown Cincinnati. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.